This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'll bring you a new case that we get to dive deep into. The purpose of our show is to bring awareness to victims' stories and to expose the monsters lurking all around us. So if you've listened to our very first episode where I covered the case that got me hooked on the true crime genre, then you might remember that years ago when I was working at a barber shop, an Idaho Falls police officer had mentioned to me that they were close to solving Angie Dodge's case, which had been a decades-old cold case here in my hometown. Well, during that conversation, this officer had also mentioned another cold case in Idaho Falls that they were close to solving. I guess in 2019, the IFPD was just killing it on making arrests in cold cases, so kudos to them on that. And the other case mentioned is another murder out of my hometown that has always intrigued me. I think any case that has gone years without being solved will make your mind run wild. I always wish for answers for the victim's families, so my mind will be consumed with the possibilities and the questions of why there are no answers. So when that officer told us they were close to resolutions in Angie and Stephanie's cases, I was just as excited for Stephanie's family as I was for Angie's family. So today, we're talking about Stephanie. With that, are you ready for today's case? So my mom's computer was not working when we came on to record this episode. That's a huge bummer. She was supposed to be here for this case. She's not going to be with us, but we are recording a bunch of episodes together when I'm with her later this week. So she will be around. We have a lot of updates to give you on the murders in Idaho. There, The four college students that were stabbed. There are a lot of sad things that have happened like the shooting in Colorado. So we will be doing some news episodes for our fan club later on this week. For today, let's just jump right into this case. It was about 12.30 p.m. here in Idaho Falls, Idaho on Monday, August 20th, 2007. Lynette Thiessen had just returned to her home after being gone for the morning, and what she finds inside does not sit well with her. Lynette's four-month-old granddaughter, Alyssa, is home alone. Lynette lives in this home with her two sons, Michael Jimenez and Kenneth Jones. They're half-brothers, so they don't share the same last name. And then they also live there with Michael's girlfriend, 21-year-old Stephanie Eldridge, and Stephanie and Michael's baby. This is the baby that Grandma Lynette finds alone inside the home. And most sources actually describe the home as an apartment, but from the photo, it is a house. So that makes me think this house is probably a duplex they're in or something like a basement apartment, but it's not like some large apartment complex. Now, Lynette knows this is not the norm for Stephanie. She has never left Alyssa home alone. So once she scours each room and confirms that Stephanie is absolutely nowhere to be found, she immediately calls her son, Michael. He can tell his mom is very concerned, so Michael rushes home from work and he gets to the 
home and he has the same sinking feeling in his gut that his mom had. Something was not right here. The Stephanie he knew would never just leave Alyssa there to fend for herself. She's only four months old for crying out loud. She shouldn't have been alone at all. So Michael makes the decision to call 911 and report that he needs help in locating Stephanie. Officers are dispatched to the home on Holbrook Drive, and at first, everyone questions if it was possible that Stephanie ran off purposefully. I listened to a Nancy Grace episode that covered Stephanie's story as a part of my research, and Nancy has like multiple different experts on her show weigh in on a case. So she has this woman lawyer involved in this episode, and the lady says something along the lines of Idaho Falls being a town with a lot of values and where families normally stay together. She goes on to say that because of this, women here are unlikely to leave their family because they aren't usually having affairs or meeting people online. So I just had to throw this in here to point out how absolutely ridiculous that statement is because while Idaho Falls is a fairly religious community that embraces a lot of family values, people are still absolutely getting divorced, having affairs. They're involved in all sorts of marital scandal. And thankfully, Nancy Grace was like, what? And she asked this lawyer if she's saying that women from a small town can't fall in love online. And she's super shocked by what this woman had said and was like, why would you buy into that narrative? And you need to get it together because that is an outrageous thing to say and it was it made me laugh I was like oh we must be perfection here but no that's not the truth and this reminds me of our third episode on the serial killer in North Pole Alaska one man had come home from work to find his baby alone just sitting in the crib but his wife was gone and in that case the first thought was did this woman just run off for a different life and honestly, I understand why police need to rule out this possibility, but we know it's extremely rare for this to actually be the case. So people don't believe Stephanie would just run off, abandoning her partner and child. It's not because Stephanie is from Idaho Falls, where we embrace family values and are apparently perfect people. <laughs> Sarcasm. But it's actually the scene at the home that points people away from this theory. Not only was her baby left behind, but so was Stephanie's shoes, keys, purse, and cell phone. So big red flags, because who leaves the home without one of these things, let alone all of them? On top of this, Stephanie's family knew she had a lot of goals in her near future that she was set to complete. They tell investigators she would have never run away at this point in her life. However, they do acknowledge that she had gone through the struggles of a drug addiction. She didn't have this perfect history, but she had worked hard to overcome what once had consumed her. By the time she goes missing in 2007, Stephanie had been sober for two and a half years. Her full name is Stephanie Ann Wilkie Eldridge, and she was born on August 5, 1986 in Everett, Washington. Her parents are Roger Milton Wilkie and L. Mariah King Wilkie, and she has a brother, Ryan A. Wilkie. Stephanie had moved around a bit before her family settles down in Idaho Falls. She spends a few years in New Orleans, a 
couple years in Bo the Boise, Idaho area, and then the majority of her life in Idaho Falls, where she spent 14 years. At some point, Stephanie's dad, Roger Wilkie, seems to have moved to the Philippines. I'm not sure how old she was when he moves there or if he did spend the remainder of his life there, but his parents, Jack and Margaret Wallace, and Stephanie's mom, Mariah, along with Mariah's parents, Della and Pam Burns, they all live here in Idaho Falls or around Idaho Falls. So most of Stephanie's family was here when she goes missing. Although her paternal grandma, Margaret Wallace, had passed away before the family was devastated by the disappearance. So Stephanie was a member of the Gethsemane Baptist Church, and for elementary school, she went to a Gethsemane Christian school, then Clary Gell Jr. High, and spent her high school years at Idaho Falls High School. It was during these teen years that Stephanie starts experimenting with drugs, eventually leading her to try methamphetamine, and she was hooked. She drops out of school at age 17 and gets married to Zachary Eldridge. I'm not sure how long this marriage lasts, but we know the couple eventually splits since by 2007, she's dating her third child's father, Michael. So we know from the beginning of this episode that Stephanie has a four-month-old daughter, baby Alyssa, by the time she is 21 when she goes missing. But Alyssa is her third child. Stephanie already has two older daughters, Taylor and Haley. She had become a mom at a very young age, and through all of this, she cannot kick her drug habit. It had a hold on her. But she wasn't a bad mom. She was just dealing with her own struggles. Stephanie's cousin, Jolene Brewer-Smith, tells the Post Register, quote, that girl could have walked on stars when she had her first baby. She described Stephanie as a committed mom that took her little girls everywhere with her. She always had their hair done really cute, and Stephanie loved to dress them up and go dancing with them whenever music came on. Her ultimate goal in life was to open up her own dance studio. Her cousin remembers Stephanie being a bit of what she described as a neat freak, so when she would stop by, Stephanie usually had a mop in one hand and was juggling a baby in the other hand. And now here, two things can be true. Stephanie was a loving mother, but because of her struggles with addiction, there was a point in time where being in her care was not the safest option for Taylor and Haley. The state actually intervenes and removes Stephanie's two daughters from her home, and they place these girls into their maternal grandma's home. So they end up living with Mariah, Stephanie's mom. And this was described as being the saddest day in Stephanie's life. She was torn apart when she lost her daughters, but it was the brutal reality check she needed. This motivated her to fight against her addiction and create an environment that her children could thrive in. There were mountains to climb along the way, but Stephanie was intent on furthering her education and bringing her daughters home. Her grandpa, Del Burns, said, quote, she worked so hard with so much determination to get those girls back. By the time she has baby number three with her boyfriend, Michael, she had been sober for two and a half years. She was set to graduate drug court that fall, just months after her disappearance. And not only that, but she was also going to enroll in the fall of 2007 at East Idaho Technical College to become a dental hygienist. By August, Stephanie was already planning the reunion with Taylor and Haley by purchasing these little white bunk beds. She was literally on the brink of her second chance. Her cousin Jolene says, quote, 
even when she was going through a bad time, she had the ability to smile. It really speaks to what she's made of. So jumping back to that fateful day on August 20th, police have come to the scene and they find all the belongings left behind by Stephanie. Pretty quickly, it's ruled out that Stephanie jumped ship to abandon her children and her partner. In fact, her and Michael were even planning a wedding. So technically, he's not just her boyfriend. He is her fiancé. Police had a lot of questions for him and the family, and it seems like they all wanted to be cooperative, and they are helping to search for Stephanie. First, Michael said that he had last seen Stephanie before leaving for work that morning. It was about 6 a.m. when he says goodbye to her, and then they talk again at 9 a.m. when Stephanie calls to say that she's not feeling too good. She's thinking she's getting sick. So between 9 a.m. and noon, Michael tries to call back. He's wanting to check in on Stephanie and see if she's feeling any better, but she never answers. And by 1230 that day, he gets the call from his mom. She's saying that she just found Alyssa home alone. I'm not sure what time Lynette leaves for work that morning, but we know she's back at 12.30. Kenneth, Michael's half-brother, said he was also at work that day. He doesn't return home until after investigators are already at the home. So based on this timeline, Alyssa could have been left alone for up to three and a half hours. No one knows what happened between 9 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. So the Idaho Falls Police Department does believe foul play is involved here. I mean, who wouldn't when all of those items, as well as a baby, are left behind? But there doesn't seem to be any signs of an intruder. So could this have been someone Stephanie knew? Through the early stages of the investigation, police feel like they're close to solving this case. The answer is right there in their reach, but they can't quite get a firm grasp on what happened. So although hopes were high at first, Stephanie's case goes cold. No one could find her. No one was named as a suspect. She was just gone, leaving a large hole in the hearts of all those who loved her. Three little girls no longer had a mother. Michael was now a single father. And her parents and grandparents had their hearts completely shattered. Each year on Stephanie's birthday, her family would gather downtown at the Snake River and hold a vigil for Stephanie. They would reminisce about their memories with her, how she loved fishing and snow skiing, and how talented she was in high school, a natural athlete who excelled in gymnastics and soccer. As the years passed, the hope to bring Stephanie home was diminishing. Whether they were bringing her home alive or not, at this point they just wanted answers, even if the ending wasn't what they wished for. The perfect scenario would be that Stephanie did run off on her own and that she would come home safely. But they were all living the worst scenario, being in limbo, unsure of what happened, unsure of where she is. And if foul play was involved, they're unable to lay her to rest. But almost three years after her disappearance, at least one question would be answered. Where was Stephanie? On April 23rd, 2010, a windmill repairman is just out and about doing his job. He's attending to the windmills that sit in the foothills east of Idaho Falls. Back in 2010, I was in high school and there weren't a ton of windmills up there. I feel like they were just starting to make their appearance around then, but now there are so many windmills up in these foothills. And these foothills are pretty much just sagebrush and like little rolling hills. 
and a quite quite a lot of people live up in the hills so they are populated and they're just about 10 minutes out of town east of idaho falls so there's not an abundance of people up there especially the further back you go um my husband jacob his parents home actually used to be like one of the houses furthest back up on the hill um up on the road they were on and they still live up there in the foothills and my family actually did too for the first few years after we moved to idaho falls that's where i met my husband anyway well now there are so so many homes up behind jacob's parents but there is still a lot of open land and then the further you go it's just more and more open and in that open land, people will ride dirt bikes, go shooting, go hunting, you know, Idaho things. And, you know, they'll do things like have a bonfire, throw a party, whatnot. So the area this repairman is working on is said to be in the bone area. So this is quite a bit further into the foothills than where most neighborhoods in the hills are. I know some people that live out there, but there's not many. It's more like 20 to 30 minutes east of Idaho Falls and into the foothills. So this is a pretty remote area. The repairman is going about his day out there in the desolate country, and what he is not expecting is the trauma he's about to be faced with when he comes across human remains. Since years had passed, Stephanie's remains were now skeletal, but it was clear something sinister happened here. Her wrists are bound together with electrical tape, and this same tape was wrapped around her head and face. She had been put into a shallow grave, wrapped in a blanket and in a fitted sheet. And she is found in this bone area, kind of across from a, I guess, what at that time was known as a local party spot. So this was probably a spot that someone in Idaho Falls was familiar with. Immediately, authorities are called to the scene, and the news that remains have been found spreads throughout the community. But unfortunately, there were two families waiting to hear if it was their loved one. Just six years before Stephanie's disappearance, Amber Hoops had gone missing from her grandparents' home slash auto shop on Lincoln Road in Idaho Falls. Both cases were unsolved at this point. So with the remains being skeletal, no one knows yet if it was Stephanie or Amber. Stephanie's grandpa, Dale Burns, describes the remains being so depleted that authorities couldn't even gather forensic evidence, determine a cause of death, or identify people responsible. But dental records that were examined by a forensic odontologist confirmed that these remains were those of Stephanie Eldridge. Amber Hoop's case is still a cold case to this day, and her body has never been found. This is a case I absolutely plan to cover in the future. It's terribly sad, and her family is still here in Idaho Falls. It's a small world if you're from here, so I know people connected to them, and I just want to be really sensitive when we do come around to covering her case, um, as it's still technically unsolved. So... Moving along in Stephanie's case, with the discovery of her body, you would think that investigators might finally be able to pin down the person responsible for her murder. But that's not what happens. Six more years pass by, and we come to 2016. Crystal Douglas is the founder of East Idaho Cold Cases, and she had taken notice that other states were starting to hand out playing cards featuring things like cold cases or missing people. 
Crystal is digging this idea, and she thinks that Idaho could benefit from a program like this. She comes together with the Idaho Department of Corrections, and they invest in a deck of cards. Crystal puts $2,000 into the project herself, and the Department of Corrections donates $5,000. With this, the cards would be passed out to every state prison, while Crystal works with the local county jails to take on the cards as well. She tells Nate Eaton with East Idaho News that her hope is to elicit new tips from the inmate population. She notes that inmates brag to each other about crimes all the time, and they're always playing cards to pass their time. So these cards might just be the answer to solving a few cold cases. There's a mixture of wanted people, missing people, and unsolved cases in these cards, and Stephanie is featured on the deck as the Six of Diamonds. There is a picture of her with her name underneath and a short description of her disappearance and murder. Stephanie's family had faith that these cards would help, and even if they didn't aid in solving Stephanie's case, they hoped the cards would at least help other families find some closure. So, what happens after 2016? Still nothing. Two more years pass, and we're in 2018 now, 11 years since Stephanie vanished. And Idaho Falls police detective Jessica Marley believes this case is solvable. She starts pushing for the opportunity to investigate it, and in 2018, she's granted that wish when she is assigned to work on Stephanie's case full-time. She even works with the Oxygen TV show Cold Justice to get Stephanie's story out there. They also help to fund the investigation. And on top of this, they help to accelerate the new testing that's being done. They're using new tech to test decade-old evidence. And seriously, I tried to find where I could watch this episode of Cold Justice. And I'll tell you what, I searched high and low. I searched for at least an hour and I could not find any platform that was stream stream. I couldn't find an option to pay for it. I just kept finding season six of Cold Justice. But online, it said that Stephanie's case was featured in season five. So unfortunately, I was not able to watch this episode. But it does seem that Detective Marley's work pays off because just one year after she starts to work Stephanie's case full time, the Idaho Falls Police Department announced the arrest of Kenneth Jones on March 23, 2019. Kenneth had been arrested the day before on March 22nd and charged with the second degree murder of Stephanie. Now, do you remember who Kenneth is? It is Michael's half-brother, the brother that was living in the home with their mother, Michael, Stephanie, and baby Alyssa. We tend to assume that people are often killed by their partner, right? Because it usually leans that way. That's where you get the phrase, the husband did it, or it's always the husband, because statistically it happens more. And I'm not saying it's right for people to assume these things in an unsolved case, but they do. So everyone is blown away to learn that it wasn't Michael who killed his fiance and the mother of his child. It was his brother. Well, I say everyone, but I mean the community is shocked. Police, however... They had already had Kenneth Jones on their radar from the first day of this investigation. It's a bit frustrating to me that it takes 12 years to arrest this evil man when police basically knew he did it from day 
One, look, I'm proud that the Idaho Falls Police Department dedicated Jessica Marley to this case and that they were able to solve it and bring it to a close. I am happy for that. I just think it could have been done in the initial investigation. I'm not sure what information was gathered that finally pushed police to file charges against Kenneth, but let's go back to all the evidence gathered back in 2007. So remember Kenneth had first told investigators that he was working the morning that Stephanie disappeared. Well, he told them he didn't leave until 10.45 a.m. that morning. And soon the story changes to him waking Stephanie up at 8.30 a.m. that morning before going to work. Then he says he returned home around 10 a.m. and Stephanie was in the shower getting ready to leave. He says she leaves by 10.15 a.m., saying she'll be right back, and then he leaves again for work until noon when he drives back home to find out that Stephanie is missing. Well, none of his changing stories matter because police check with his boss and he had never gone to work that day. His boss never saw him and neither did any of his co-workers. So when he's confronted with this, he changes his story yet again, saying that he actually went to a friend's house to buy some weed. Yet that friend and the friend's wife don't recall Kenneth coming over that morning. So on the day Stephanie goes missing, Lynette and Michael are home talking with the police. Well, when Kenneth pulls up to the home, they both burst into tears. They have this hunch that Kenneth had done something because his face and neck are covered in scratches. Kenneth blows it off by saying these scratches came from branches on a bush at his job. But police give him the side eye because it seems a scratch from a branch would be horizontal, yet all of these scratches are vertical. Michael also tells police that he saw Kenneth driving through an intersection on Sunnyside and Ammon Road. He says Kenneth had turned to go east of Idaho Falls. Back in 2007, no one realized how significant that turn was because that road would have led Kenneth straight up into the foothills and into Bone. Kenneth probably had Michael's fiance dead in his trunk when Michael passes him. It's horrific to think about. So investigators, with the information from Michael that he saw Kenneth out and about around 1145, they decided to take Kenneth on a ride that day. They asked Kenneth to show them where he had been during the hour Stephanie is unaccounted for, and he does take them out towards Bone. And I'm not sure how Michael saw him, if it was like he went around for work they don't really say but police had ruled out Michael and did confirm he was not at the home during the hours that Stephanie disappeared same with Lynette his mom so you know on this day the first day of the investigation back on August 20th of 2007 police also search Kenneth's car not only are there weeds stuck in the undercarriage of his car, but in the trunk, there are bits of black electrical tape. Remember, she was found bound by electrical tape. And there's also reddish brown hair. When Stephanie had gone missing, her hair was this color. The hair would later be tested, and it is matched to Stephanie. However, they can't say it is 100% hers. They can only narrow it down to being someone in her maternal line. So her, her mom, her grandma, her daughters. And it's like, <laughs> obviously, that means it's hers. But apparently, 
this is not enough for an arrest. Kenneth said Stephanie had never been in his car, but that her hair could have gotten in there because of a speaker he took inside the home, and then he would always return it to his car. So he's saying he's bringing the speaker in and out of the house. However, Michael doesn't remember the speaker ever being brought inside. And what's really weird is there is this thin layer of dust across the entire car, like the interior of the car, except for one large spot in the trunk where the dust seems to be wiped away. It looks like something had just been placed in there and then taken out. I mean, to me, it's clear he did it, but I have hindsight. He was the only person of interest for police since day one. And as the years go on, their suspicion only grows. In 2009, Kenneth had spent some time in the Bonneville County Jail on unrelated charges. He was there from February 4th to March 5th. And while he's there, he's serving alongside another inmate named Eddie. That same year, Eddie comes forward to tell police what Kenneth had confessed to him in jail. He says that Kenneth bragged about murdering Stephanie. The story he gives Eddie was that Kenneth hit Stephanie in the back of the head while she is in the bathroom. And when she falls to the ground, he climbs onto her and holds her down. She's struggling, so he starts hitting her with his fists before suffocating her. Kenneth claims he wasn't in his right mind, so when he snaps out of it, he realizes that Stephanie is not breathing. Now he panics, and he wraps her up in a blanket to bring her out to the trunk of his car. Inside that trunk, he says he has a sheet that he wraps her up, her and the blanket up with. And Eddie says that Kenneth, when he's telling this story, keeps referring to Stephanie as his girlfriend. Kenneth keeps saying he was in love with her. I think out of all the stories we get, this one is probably closest to the truth, but still not the whole truth. I've heard this said on the True Crime Obsessed podcast that the killer is a unreliable narrator. And that's so right, because they aren't usually going to give us the full truth. They'll try to distance themselves from this crime. And as you'll see, when, when Kenneth goes to court, he really separates himself from this crime. And he tries to diminish his role so much, eventually saying that this was a full-on accident. But I'll tell you now, I do not believe that. An expert on the Nancy Grace podcast says that the electrical tape bound on her wrist and around her head and her face almost shows him that she was being restrained. Her attacker might have been trying to muzzle her screams. I believe in my gut that Kenneth had an obsession with Stephanie and his crime was probably sexually motivated. But this is just my opinion. Whether he had the intent to kill her or not, I don't know, but I do think he had the intent to attack her. So with Eddie's tip to police, inmate testimony can always be a little questionable, but investigators are able to confirm certain parts of Eddie's story later on when her body is recovered. And when he's questioned again years later, he recalls the same details he had told police back in 2009. Eddie had also said that Kenneth told him his mother knew what he had done. I think this ties back to Lynette and Michael bursting into tears when they see Kenneth come home with scratches on his face. It looks bad. They're terrified that their own family did this, but they continue to allow him around them. 
I think this can be easily judged from the outside, but think about it this way. What if it was your family? If the police are investigating and they don't say it's him, maybe you could convince yourself that he didn't do it. That it was crazy of you to think he would. Like, as his family members, I can see Lynette and Michael talking themselves out of the belief Kenneth was involved, especially with police never naming him as a suspect. I think they believed if the police really thought Kenneth did it, that they would have charged him. So, 12 years passed by, and it's not till 2019 that Kenneth is finally charged, but only with second-degree murder. Bonneville County Prosecutor Daniel Clark made a statement that there was zero evidence that would convince a jury of first-degree murder. However, he thought if any more evidence came to the surface, it was a possibility that they could reevaluate the decision and change it to a first-degree murder charge. Unfortunately, that never happens. Idaho Code defines first-degree murder as willful, willful, deliberate, and premeditated. Any murder that is not all of those things is second-degree murder. Now, I would beg to differ that this Kenneth murdering Stephanie was probably willful, deliberate, and premeditated, but they can't prove that. They can, however, prove second-degree murder, so I think this is why they go with that charge. It's in October of 2020 that 32-year-old Kenneth Jones has an impromptu change of plea and he pleads guilty to voluntary manslaughter and concealment and altercation or destruction of evidence. And both of these charges are felonies. He also pleads guilty to misdemeanor resisting and obstruction. And part of this plea deal takes off the second degree murder charge, which means he avoided a possible life sentence. I don't really think it's fair because he had already lived 12 years, almost 13 years by the time he is sentenced. Stephanie had been gone all this time and he was just out there living. And honestly, he was not doing well at all. He was a re-offending criminal over and over. He spent a lot of time in jail and prison and I think he just should have gotten a larger sentence. He was 18 years old when he killed Stephanie and now he's 32 year old, two years old getting sentenced in 2020. As for his criminal history, when Kenneth is served the arrest warrant for the murder of Stephanie, he is already in Boise, Idaho, serving time in a state prison, and he was serving time for arson. I read an article that said he was basically arguing with his mom's husband at that time. This is years later, so it's not a husband that Lynette had in the home in 2007, but Kenneth is a full-on adult arguing with his mom's boyfriend, Her, and it's just, it sounded like this big mess. Kenneth is causing chaos, causing havoc, and the mom ends up having to call 911 asking police to come and saying that her son told her if police respond to this call, he will light their house on fire. And apparently he did because he gets arrested, charged and sentenced for arson. And that's what he's serving time for when he gets the murder charge. It's like, yeah, I, he doesn't sound like a good dude. The smirk on his face when he, in his mugshot is so slappable. It's like, I laughed when I saw it because I was just like, oh, 
that's a face I could punch. <laughs> so it's District Judge Joel Tinchy who orders him to serve a minimum of nine years in prison for the manslaughter with an indeterminate period of six years in prison. Also, he is sentenced to an indeterminate period of five years for the destruction, altercation, or concealment of evidence. And then this is to be served consecutively with his manslaughter sentence, meaning it has to be served separately. There's also a misdemeanor sentence of one year for resisting or obstructing obstruct, the obstruction of officers. And that is also consecutive with his felony sentences. The combined sentence is 10 to 21 years, and this is also consecutive with his 2011 prison sentence for the arson. So Kenneth is not eligible for parole until 2023, but that is literally in only 10 years. Like, I'll still be living here in 10 years, and he sounds like a dangerous, angry person. I don't want him out here. I hate that. So all three of Stephanie's daughters give impact statements at the sentencing and they talk about what a huge loss it was in their lives to grow up without their mothers. And they talk about the trauma and shock of finding out that it was Kenneth, the brother of Stephanie's fiance, the uncle of her youngest daughter, Alyssa, who killed her. Taylor is Stephanie's oldest daughter and she only has four photos of her mom. That's literally all she has to remember Stephanie by. She says, quote, I don't remember her voice. I don't remember her laugh. You've ruined the lives of so many, but most of all, you've ruined your own. And Taylor kind of reiterates that she was always the girl in school whose mother was killed and that kids would always ask her about it. That would be such a tough time just to go through school without a mom, let alone with this trauma that all these other kids want to be curious about and don't realize that. It's not something she really wants brought up every day or that she wants to explain over and over again. Stephanie's second daughter, Haley, says some very similar things, talking about how she didn't grow up with any videos or recordings of her mom. And she says to Kenneth, quote, you took another human's life and you hid it for 13 years. Now, the defense attorney, Curtis Smith, he wants to, you know, obviously defend his client, but he says that Kenneth really wanted to come forward about the death. He just feared his family would disown him, which like, yeah, Kenneth, that's what happens when you murder people. Your family disowns you. You have to accept that. Now, he says, quote, Kenny could not get over the mental anguish of if his family would love him if he came forward and told the truth. So, you know, I just said your family disowns you, which I mean, they I think they should, but they could still love you. Um, I don't think this is why Kenneth didn't come forward. The prosecutor, Prosecutor Clark, he thinks Kenneth's recollection of events is BS. Quote, the defendant says this was an accident. The conduct was intentional. He said that he may have not meant to kill her, but that he pushed her on purpose and he didn't call for help, preventing any chance to save her. So basically, Kenneth, when he pleads guilty, he says that what happened is him and Stephanie got in an argument and he just pushed her and she hit her head on the wall, fell to the ground, and that's what led to her death. And it's like, yeah, absolutely not. 
He claims he panicked and so he just wanted to hide the body and then that's why he lied to police and kept it hidden all these years because he totally didn't mean to do it. But I'm with Prosecutor Clark. That story's BS. Like I said earlier, I think it was absolutely Kenneth's intent to attack her. Kenneth makes his own victim impact statement saying, I don't expect forgiveness from anyone and I don't expect anyone to feel sorry for me. Okay, good, because we don't. So it was Judge Tingey who had read Kenneth's statements about what happened, this whole accident thing. He re reads these statements out loud and he says that he finds it, quote, plausible but suspect, meaning that he thinks it could be possible, but not likely. It's suspect. It's sus. It's, it is a lie. And Judge Tingey also notes Kenneth's decision not to come forward sooner. The only reason he's making a plea agreement is because he was arrested. He would have never confessed to this if he was not already charged with the murder. And he doesn't even confess. He literally tries to diminish his role and distance himself from what really took place. Stephanie's mom, Mariah, was too unhealthy by the time sentencing comes around. In fact, a lot of her family members would pass before having the chance to see justice served. Her dad, Roger Wilkie, and her maternal grandma, Pam Burns, died just one day apart from each other in 2015. Roger passed away on December 23rd, while Pam passes away on Christmas Eve, December 24th. Both of them had to leave this earth without the answers they longed for. And since Stephanie's mom couldn't attend the trial, Jamie Robinson gives an impact statement on her behalf, saying that Mariah had struggled every day since Stephanie's disappearance. Quote, not a day goes by without a conversation about Stephanie. I don't know how to forgive someone who is so evil. Zachary Eldridge, Stephanie's ex-husband, wishes that Stephanie's life wasn't stolen from her. Kenneth stole his daughter's mother from them. Quote, I don't think we can ever be normal with this experience. Stephanie Eldridge's funeral had been held a few months after her body was found in 2010. The services were held at the Wood Funeral Home on August 21st, 2010, and Stephanie was buried in the Rigby Pioneer Cemetery. Stephanie's youngest daughter, Alyssa, the baby who was left at home alone while her mom's body was being discarded, says that Kenneth had lived with her family for the last 12 years, and now she finds out that she has been living with her mom's killer. Quote, he watched my dad struggle for every day and shrugged it off like it was nothing. Although I wish an arrest was made much earlier in the investigation, I am still happy that one day Stephanie's loved ones were able to gain a bit of closure. I wish Kenneth was serving more time, but we're here now. Hopefully he does not get paroled in 10 years in 2033. My heart is with Stephanie's daughters and all those who loved her. May we never forget Stephanie Eldridge. Thanks for listening. I love you so much. I write, research, and edit this show. Oh, and I host it as well. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. She was not with us today. Our palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters, and all our music is created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Follow us on social, share our episodes, and don't forget to leave us a five-star written review if you love us.
Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today we are going to be doing a palate cleanser. Today we are going to be learning about how we can be kind and include others. So you can include others in your games and play with them and be nice to them. Do you want to know why it's important? It's important because others want um, you to play with them so they can feel good inside. Bye. Have a great day. I want to highlight the Bonneville slash Idaho Falls Crime Stoppers. They're on 312 Elm Street, Idaho Falls, Idaho, 83402. And you're able to make donations to them by sending a check to this address. But you can also specifically make a donation by sending a check to them to the Idaho Cold Case Card Project. So whether you want it to be just to the Crime Stoppers in general or specifically to the Idaho Cold Case Card Project, Project, you can get involved. The Cold Case Project is the deck of cards that features all the cold cases. And if you do want it to be specifically for that, your donation, it must indicate cold case cards. You can also call their tip line for any information on unsolved crime. You can remain completely anonymous and they're a huge advocate for solving cold cases in the Idaho Falls Bonneville area. So call their number at 1-844-TIP-4040. That you can also call 208-523-1983 for the local Idaho Falls Crime Stoppers number. 208-523-1983.